Hello, my name is Wang Yan, and I am a reporter with News China. With our weekly News China podcast, we aim to give insight into the trends and happenings in modern China through a historical lens. Today, we are going to discuss food security issue in ancient China. For many Chinese, memories of mass starvation are fading. People don't say hello by asking, 你吃了吗? Have you eaten? As much as they used to. However, concerns over food security returned this year. Amid the COVID-19 pandemic, China's green producing areas were hit with floods and typhoons. In August, Chinese President Xi Jinping called on the public to stop food waste. Despite the floods, there is no imminent staple shortage due to this year's record high green harvests and ample reserves. However, in the long term, China will face a tightly balanced supply of rice and wheat, the main staples on China's dinner tables. Globally, Food security is becoming a more serious issue. The UN's Food and Agriculture Organization warned in August that the COVID-19 pandemic may add between 83 and 132 million people to the total number of unnourished in the world in 2020, depending on the economic growth scenario. To a large extent, food supply shaped development of the world's early civilizations. In China, food security was a matter of dynastic survival. Mesopotamia is the world's oldest known civilization. It emerged about 6,000 years ago between the Middle East, Tigris, and Euphrates rivers, which provided steady supplies for irrigation. This was the first area where people planted wheat and practiced settled agriculture. The fertile flight land is often called the cradle of civilization. But along with its ideal natural conditions came troubles. Nomadic tribes from the surrounding deserts and upstream frequently pillaged and invaded the area. Historians still debate the number of times the area was ravaged by invaders and conquerors over the millennia. By contrast, the ancient Egypt was more stable. This is owed in part to its unique agricultural conditions. The Nile would flood with regularity in summer, naturally irrigating the downstream areas, and Egyptians would harvest their crops before the floods came again. The long and narrow river valleys were surrounded by deserts, which shielded from enemies. A united Upper and Lower Egypt was normally strong enough to resist the raiders coming from the river valleys or by sea. In ancient India, the four-tire caste system dictated social order. The third-ranked Vishayas and the fourth-ranked Shadras were relegated to farming for thousands of years. A highly diversified agrarian civilization developed. 
China was geographically isolated, making the long journey difficult for foreign civilizations and invaders. But food supply was a constant problem. Three thousand years of written records show that the Yellow River flooded once every two years and changed course once a century. Huge labor, technical and capital investments were necessary to develop agriculture there. To the south, the Yangtze River runs through mountainous and rainfall-heavy areas, making early agriculture very difficult. Before the Tang Dynasty in the seventh century, the Yangtze River regions were much less agriculturally developed than those along the Yellow River. In the 1,300 years since the Tang, the Yangtze flooded once every six years on average. Given all this. Geographic isolation and human influence on nature were decisive factors in the flourishing of Chinese civilization and shaping of Chinese politics. For example, Yu the Great, the legendary founder of the Xia Dynasty, brought dynastic rule to China when he put the flood under control. Drought was even more of a scourge on ancient China. People could evacuate floods and return home to grow crops when they receded, but droughts did not give that opportunity. If a drought would last more than two years, the people had no safety net, and would resort to eating tree bark and grass. Starvation would give rise to uprisings as groups roamed the country in search of food. In the 17th century, during the waning years of the Ming Dynasty, drought plagued Emperor Chongzhen's 18-year reign. Such uprisings toppled the Ming. Just as controlling nature determined food supplies, food security was definitive in the rise and fall of Chinese dynasties. The ancient Chinese believed that floods and drought were the whims of the Dragon King. Rulers that would control this celestial being and avert natural disaster were deemed legitimate in the eyes of heaven. An important factor in the decisive Qin victory in the Warring States period over its six competitors was the Dujiangyan irrigation system. It was built in 256 BCE in today's Sichuan Province on the Mingjiang River. A large upstream tributary of the Yangtze. The project, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Site, made Sichuan a land of abundance. It is still in use today. The designer's hydraulic engineer Li Bing and his son have been worshipped as deities ever since for their contribution. With a secure green output, thanks to the project. The Qing was able to defeat its greatest rival, the Chu State, in the Yangtze's middle reaches. But just three years after its founder Qin Shi Huang died in 220 BCE, the Qing was overthrown by uprisings against its draconian rule. But the centralized imperial power system Qin Shi Huang created lasted for more than 2,000 years. Among the many reasons for its longevity, hydraulic engineering and systematic disaster relief for securing food supplies 
or important ones. Mass hydraulic engineering projects require vast amounts and coordination of human technical resources. Besides, the same ruler must control the land upstream as well as downstream. Otherwise, a vast investment upstream would not benefit the same people. Despite its frequent floods and changing course, the Yellow River became the cradle of the Chinese civilization. Why? Because it is so long. Disaster would occur on different parts of the river, but never at the same time. When some areas saw serious floodings or drought, other parts were relatively safe. The imperial government would then allocate food from these safer places to disaster-stricken areas. This could only be possible in a large country with a huge population and a centralized ruling system. A ruler's failure to provide disaster relief would call the legitimacy of their reign into question. For example, Emperor Chongzhen, who I mentioned earlier, was recognized as a diligent emperor with ambitions to revive the ailing Ming dynasty. But he failed to cope with the mass starvation and disease brought by 14 consecutive years of drought. He is said to have committed suicide after a peasant revolt captured the Ming capital of Beijing. But Emperor Chongzhen could have averted the food crisis that devastated his dynasty. When Chongzhen's reign began, New World crops had already arrived in China. Potatoes, corn, and sweet potatoes were cultivated around the country. This was very important. They were staples which had high yields and resilience to drought and pests. They were a perfect complement to China's staple food, as wheat and rice need much better conditions to grow. So, how did Chongzhen miss his chance to save the dynasty? Because agriculture was based on household farming, peasants decided what crops grow based on which would best feed their families and sell the most, as they had to pay taxes. Rice and flour, the preferred staples, would fetch much higher prices than potatoes and corn. In addition, the Ming government did not encourage farmers to plant them. Peasants had no incentive to grow the very crops that would provide food security. But Xu Guangqi, a scientist and Ming official in the 6th and 7th centuries, knew the value of these crops. He leased large amounts of land for growing potatoes and corn and encouraged other farmers to do the same. But his limited efforts were not enough to change the Ming's fate. Things changed during the 18th century Qing dynasty. In the final years of Emperor Kangxi's reign, he adopted a new tax policy. Households would not have to pay additional taxes for having more children. His son, Emperor Yongzheng, would do away with the dependent-based tax system altogether and replace it with a land tax. As a result, tax invasion was no longer possible for necessary for peasants. As it was difficult to falsify land size, there was a fixed tax per unit of land, 
higher crop output meant families could keep more for themselves. As new dependents no longer meant more taxes, young boys were no longer forced to leave their homes to save their families from falling deeper into poverty. These policies were extremely successful in stimulating tax collection and population growth. In a matter of years, at the end of Yongzheng's rule in the 18th century, the Qing treasury increased from 8 million to 60 million silver taels. For reference, a tael weighed about 50 grams. Over the 150 years, the population rose from less than 20 million at the start of Kangxi's rule to more than 300 million at the end of the reign of Kangxi's grandson, Qianlong. This made China the most populous country in the world, and the Qing the most powerful in China's 2,000 years history of dynastic rules. Two conditions were necessary for this golden age. Besides tax incentives, feeding the rapidly growing population was crucial. This was particularly true when the output of wheat and rice per unit of land was relatively low. It was corn and potatoes that fed the population. While not as tasty to most people as the rice and wheat they were culturally used to, mass starvation was no longer an issue. But population growth would finally outpace crop output in the Qing dynasty. When George McCartney led a British diplomatic delegation to China in 1793, he saw widespread poverty on his way to Beijing. He concluded that the Qing was not as strong as it looked, as the real power of a nation is visible on the dinner tables of its people. His observation gave Britain the confidence to force open China's doors to the West at gunpoint about 50 years later in the First Opium War. That is the end of our podcast. Thank you to our writer Song Yimin, editor and translator Li Jia, and copy editor JT. We hope you enjoyed it, and thank you for listening. See you next week.